Let's continue worshiping the Lord. Let me invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. As you're turning there, I think, I think this may be a historic day in the life of West Franklin. Brad can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the first time we've had a harmonica played during worship. Is that, is that, is that correct? That, yeah, that was good. That was, I didn't know. I would have played mine. And it would have been great. Anyway, um, thank you for leading us, Brad, and musicians in that, in that time. Uh, of worship. We're continuing our series through the study of David and we'll be in 1 Samuel 17. Uh, as Truett said earlier, you can get your bulletin by texting the word bulletin to 623-623. Most of you know that um, and you can read that on your own, but I do want to highlight that this Wednesday is our first big Wednesday of the fall. Uh, it'll be from 5 to 7 or so right here in this room. We'll serve a meal from 5 to 6 and then from 6 to 7, we'll do some programming, everything and everybody in here. It'll be very family gathering type feel with some content and programming. Um, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to it and I think it'll be a fun time. So let me encourage you to be here if you can. Good news. This coming Saturday is the last Saturday without college football for a long time. Glory be to his name. I recently watched a Netflix documentary on Johnny Manziel. Perhaps you had an opportunity of seeing it. Uh, it's a very interesting guy, that Johnny. Um, uh, quarterback for Texas A&M, won the Heisman Trophy several years ago. I, I loved a lot about the story. I learned a lot about the story. But one of my favorite parts is as they documented the day Johnny Manziel went from being just Johnny Manziel to being Johnny Football. If you know anything about Johnny, you know he's called Johnny Football. I guess he still is, even though he's not playing football. But they documented very carefully, and of course I leaned in, because I was, I remember this day. I didn't remember the date until the documentary, but it was November 10th, 2012. November 10th, 2012. Johnny Manziel to this day still watches this game on that morning. But it was when the number 15 Texas A&M Aggies, and Johnny was still just Johnny Manziel, traveled to Tuscaloosa to take on the mighty number one University of Alabama, Nick Saban and the Tide. And nobody, watch it, nobody, nobody was thinking that Texas A&M and poor little Johnny was going to win this game. Well, this is when Johnny Menzel became Johnny Football. As he pulled out some theatrics, did stuff nobody had ever seen him do, didn't think he could do, and on that day, November 10th, 2012, Texas A&M took down the mighty Crimson Tide. I've got that tattooed right here on my arm. I'm just kidding. But seriously, that was the day everything changed for him. When you beat Alabama, everything changes because everybody knows how big they are. And that changed for Johnny Manziel. He went from Johnny Manziel to Johnny Football. You read 1 Samuel 17. It was the day that weak, young, never fought in a war David became David the giant killer. Perhaps you've heard of the story before. David and Goliath. 1 Samuel 17 is when David gets put on the map from just a little shepherd boy to David the giant killer. Now there's 58 verses in 1 Samuel 17. It takes about 10 minutes at a decent pace, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. 
but I do encourage you to. But I do want us to start by reading three verses together. Stand with me in honor of God's word. And let's read verses 48, 49, and 50 together. You, you're, you, the reader's been reading, anticipating this, this fight between the little shepherd boy and the huge giant Goliath. And here's how it goes down. 1 Samuel 17, verse 48. When the Philistine, Goliath, started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle, battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. Jesus, would you teach us from your word? Holy Spirit, continue to join us here. And may we learn why you inspired the biblical author to put this story here. May we be in awe of you. May we be in awe of the, the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And may you help us along in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. David and Goliath. I'm guessing if you've spent any time in church, you've heard this story. I've heard it my whole life. I can remember as a young, young boy being taught by Zula Montgomery at First Baptist Church, Hartsville, Alabama, on a flannel board, the story of David and Goliath. It's a story where the small, weak, frail, young, inexperienced, never-been-to-war guy takes down the all-powerful, huge, massive, intimidating, very experienced giant. You've heard it. Even if you've never picked up a Bible in your life, you probably know to some extent the story of David and Goliath. If you watch TV at all, especially sports, you're going to hear that phrase all the time. Before a ball game, a sportscaster will say, this is a David versus Goliath type of game. And what he means is that there's one team that's super duper weak and there's another team that's super duper strong. If the weaker team beats the strong team, then after the game, the sportscaster or sports center will say, it happened, David beat Goliath. And we hear that over and over again. If you, were, if you care anything about college basketball, Last March, you probably heard that phrase a hundred times because number 16 seeded Fairleigh Dickinson, who nobody had ever heard of, beat the overall seed, number one Purdue, and then it became known that Fairleigh Dickinson wasn't even supposed to be in the tournament. They got there on a technicality because they couldn't even win their own conference, and nobody even heard of their conference. Yet they took down the number one overall seed, David versus Goliath. You've heard it. You know it. You get an idea of what it means. My concern is that we've been mistaught it. We've been a bit misinformed. I know I have. I fear that there's been some misinformation, misleading, unintentionally, hopefully. But I've been taught, perhaps you've heard this, that the story of David and Goliath teaches us that we need to be like David and if you, if you can squirrel up enough faith, you too can defeat your giants. Let's all be like David so we can slay the giants in our life. Let's all be like David so we can face our giants. And we've been fed, been taught that this story teaches us that if we can just put together enough 
faith and work at it hard enough, enough faith, then any giant that comes into our life, we can defeat it. Boy, does that put a lot of pressure on us or what? It's a lot of pressure on us to work at our faith. And if we can't defeat our giants, then we just don't have enough faith. And so we try to work at it more. Well, I don't believe this story is about us. I believe this story is about God. And I don't believe this story is about if you have enough faith, you can defeat your giants. So I've been a pastor now 22, 23 years, and I can tell you, I've buried more people than I like to remember of people who lost a fight to disease or sickness and they had more faith than I'll ever have. And they lost their fight with that giant. And I've walked with a lot of couples in marriage where one of the spouses had great faith in God but that marriage didn't make it. That giant beat them. And I've seen men and women who've been addicted to drugs and or alcohol or something else. And they had great faith and love for God. But they relapsed. The giant beat them. So I can't with integrity say that if you just have enough faith, you'll defeat the giants in your life. I don't believe this is what this story is teaching us. I don't want us to be like David in that. I can't send you out of here with that pressure on you. I do want you to be like David in this, though. If David were here this morning and if King David were to teach us, I don't think he would say, if you just had faith like I had, then you could defeat any giant in your life. I don't think he would say that. I think he would say, you need to quit worrying about all the giants and you need to focus on the bigness of God. This is a story about David's faith and the reality, the aliveness, the nearness, the power, the promises of God. For his people. And David would say, I believe to us, sometimes he may defeat a giant in your life. Sometimes he may not. That's not the point. The point is, is God greater than all of that? And you believe that. And that's firm in your heart. So yeah, there's a part of us I want us to be like David. Because man, had he experienced the reality of God. David wasn't even supposed to be there this day. He, well, let me put it this way. He wasn't out to war. You know the story. There's Philistines on one side of the hill. There's Israel on the other side of the hill. And the Philistines, they've got their ace in the hole. They've got this huge dude named Goliath. Call him a champion giant who's wearing all kind of armor, all kind of stuff on his head. He's got his weaponry. He's been to war. He's beaten everyone. And they put him out there. And he says, fee fi fo. No, I don't know what he says. He makes his declaration day after day after day after day. And he basically says to Israel, if one of you or any of you can beat me, you can have us, the Philistines. You take us down. But if you can't, we'll beat you. There's a tragedy in this story before Goliath goes down. It's scary. Here it is. 
Israel was scared. That's a tragedy. They've been calling on the God of Abraham, the God of, the God of Isaac, the God of Moses. They had heard the stories. They had seen God. But the second the Philistines put up this huge giant, Israel cowers in fear. But I thought this was your, but the bigger the giant got, the smaller their God got in their minds. That's a tragedy. It'd be like, this would never happen here. It would be like us spending half an hour singing of the greatness and the glory and the might of God, going home, turning on the news and getting scared. Our God is so big and so wonderful. Turn on the news. Can't this world get any worse? Not that it would happen here. Oh, we study about the sovereignty of God and God's love for his people and Jesus promises to build his church and then we go read one headline that says church is declining. It doesn't look good. And then we panic and think we've got to fix it ourselves. Totally forgetting that God promises to keep his people and build his church. It's a tragedy to think that the nation of Israel who knew God, heard the stories of God, saw this huge giant, and the giant was bigger than their God in their hearts. That's scary. Well, David was off tending the sheep. And he wasn't even supposed to be at war, or he wasn't at war, but his older brothers were. And Jesse, David's dad, wanted to get food to David's three older brothers who were at war. So David packs his stuff and takes food to the three oldest brothers. And while he's there, he just so happens to hear the Philistine, the giant Goliath, do his fee-fi-fo-fum, that looks good and I want some, do his spill. Is that what it says? And David listens to this, and he's like, he's, are you going to let him talk about God that way? And, and I, I imagine David thinking, surely any minute I'm going to hear somebody say, oh, uh, uh, you're not going to talk about God that way, Goliath. But he doesn't. David is shocked. See, David had been out in the field experiencing the presence and reality of God in his life. And then he, he, gets, he gets to the middle and he's giving his brothers this food and he hears the Philistines and the giants say this and then he sees even King Saul cower in fear. They're, they're not going to face him. They're scared to death. Goliath is much bigger than their God. And David says, how can, how can this be? And so he asks his brother, he says, I'll fight him. You can imagine how that went over. Read it later. Interesting conversation between brothers. You've probably heard it in your own house if you've got siblings or kids. Eliab, Eliab is like, what are you talking about? My interpretation. And he says, okay, I'll go to Saul. Maybe Saul will give me permission to go fight this giant. Saul's like, you can't do that. He says, yes, I can. And Saul says, okay, we'll give it a shot. Here's some of my military clothes. They're too big for David because David's like a ninth grade boy in, in, in high school. He's probably on the wrestling team. And, 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 and he's... 
he's really good at slingshot, and before and after school, he's got a part-time job of shepherding. And, he's, and, he takes, and he takes this clothes, but it doesn't fit him, and so he just takes that off. And I want you to notice what happens, what David says to Saul to convince him to go. Pick it up in verse 33 of 1 Samuel 17. Verse 33. Then Saul replied, you can't go fight the Philistine. You're just a youth, and he's been a warrior since he was young. David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock. I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up, if it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. Isn't that incredible? I've been out. I've been tending my father's sheep and every time a lion or a tiger or a bear, oh my, would come after one of these sheep, tiger's not there and he's, oh my, would come after these sheep, he would, he would deliver me. I've been experiencing the presence of God. I know he's real. I know he's active. I know he's near. I know that about my God, Saul. Let me go and fight this giant. This isn't, I'm going to defeat all the giants. Use God to defeat all the giants. This is, I know who my God is. And I have confidence in who my God is. And the God who was with me there is going to be with me here. The great C.S. Lewis said, the world is crowded with God. God walks everywhere incognito, and the incognito is not always hard to penetrate. The real labor is to remember, to attend, in fact, to come awake, still more to remain awake. I believe David was awake to the reality of God. And he was able to go and face that giant called Goliath because he trusted in the promises of God to keep his people, and he just knew that God was bigger than any giant in his life. question is, do you trust what you see or what you can't see? I wonder if we're too busy at home watching the news while people like David are experiencing the presence of God. I wonder if we wonder why we don't understand the bigness of God when we watch hours of the news and the world telling us how big these problems are and spend 10 minutes with God and his word. David knew God, and that was his confidence. You remember, you remember the verse the biblical author gave us in chapter 16, verse 7? Uh, uh, it's what the Lord said to Samuel when they were about to anoint David, and they didn't think he got the right guy. This is such an important verse for the whole book, but especially the story of David. Verse 7 of chapter 16, uh, we, we read this. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or, or his stature, because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. That is a critical verse for us because it's, it's God's way of saying reality is usually invisible. <laughs> the kingdom of God reality is something that you can't see. Trust that. It's interesting. How many verses are there here in, 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 in this? 58 verses. Description after description after description. If you were to take time to read the description of Goliath and his height and his armor, 
It's the most detailed description of military outfit anywhere in the Bible. You're not going to read a more detailed description of someone dressed for military work. Why? Because the biblical author is telling us Israel, what they saw is where they put their faith. And the biblical author wants us to know there is a God that is much more real than that giant. Right before David attacked Goliath, he said something startling that I want to call your attention to. Right before he ran up, and by the way, that fight was so anticlimactic. Did you notice that? You wait 50 verses to get to a fight. As a spectator, you want at least the big guy to have a, have a blow or two. You're hoping you didn't pay 100 bucks for um, uh, the, the whatever you pay for, the pay-per-view stuff to watch this fight because it was over in a second. But I want you to notice what David said to this giant right before he approached him. Verse 45. David said to the Philistine. You come against me with a sword, a spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. So he's just dripping with the reality of God. Saying to the Philistine, I know this God. I know what he promises. He's going to fight for us. That's what I long for for us, Wes Franklin. For us to, yes, sing about the greatness of God, learn about the greatness of God, but believe that that same God we're singing about and learning about here is the same one at home, the same one at work. I dropped, a, I dropped my firstborn son off at college this week, and as I'm driving home, I have never in my life wished I had spent more time helping him understand the nearness, the presence, the activity, the power, and love of God everywhere. I didn't wish that I had taught him more morals, as important as that is. I didn't wish that I had taught him to, to study more and to get a scholarship, as important as that is. I wish, I, there's just things that I, that I didn't wish for, but what I did wish for is that I longed for him to experience and know that God is near and there and worthy to be praised and obeyed and worshiped. Not just here, but present with him. That's the reality. And that's what I'm calling us to, if you're going to be like David. Israel was busy telling God how big their giants were. David was busy telling the giant how big his God was. There's a big difference. Now, how do we live our life knowing that God is for us and it's okay to be awake to his presence not fearful that he's against us see Wes Franklin I'm almost done but I, I, want, I want to make this point because it's huge I believe this story is pointing to a much greater story perhaps you see it it's what, it's what the Bible does there are little bitty stories that help us understand who God is and they point to a bigger story and this one is pointing to a much bigger story, our story. See if you don't see it with me. God's people, Israel, were being threatened. 
God doesn't put up with that well. They were, they were, they were being threatened by the Philistines. And so they had their ace in the hole, Goliath. Go back and read his description later. Get this, get this. The biblical author describes Goliath as wearing bronze scales, which means he looked reptilian, which means Goliath resembled a dragon. A dragon coming against the people of God. A reptile coming against the people of God. You heard that before? people of God are helpless. Even the king, Saul, won't do anything. Somebody's got to do something, and it's got to come from outside. Who's it going to be that will deliver the nation of Israel, take care of God's people? That happens to be a shepherd boy from Bethlehem who's young, inexperienced, frail, weak. We'll say four and a half foot nothing, 110 pounds soaking wet, though I don't know. And he says, I'll do it. You? And he goes and he finally gets permission. And he does so in such a weird way, not even a sword. He gets five stones. You know what I learned this week? Growing up on my flannel, my flannel graph Sunday school teacher told me that the pebbles were probably about this big. But do you know what I learned? Scholars have now shown that the stones used to kill Goliath were about the size, the stone, I should say, was about the size of a tennis ball. That'll leave a mark. And I've learned, by the way, that um, David wasn't the only soldier that could do this. This is how they shot bullets back then. There were thousands of other soldiers that could do this. This wasn't a miracle. This was David trusting in the reality of God. And David takes in the very first stone, very anticlimactic. I mean, we're sitting here, okay, we're invested. We're 50 verses in. And we read, oh, and that's it. And this weak, small, little boy, shepherd boy, got him. And it's over. God's people go free because the Philistines are defeated. Does that not smell like something to you? God's people have an enemy. Sin, Satan, death, very reptilian. And we're helpless on our own. We can't fix ourselves. We've tried. It doesn't work. We need someone from outside of us. And it just happens to be a boy from Bethlehem who later called himself a shepherd. He, he didn't look like a Messiah, but he was the Messiah. He didn't look like a king, but he called himself a king. He, he, he didn't look like the son of God, but he was the son of God. He didn't, he didn't play that part, but he even called himself once the son of David. And everybody's expecting this cosmic battle. Here's the Messiah. Surely he's going to take over Rome. But what does he do? takes himself and he goes to a cross and he dies a stone and a slingshot to the head a cross crucifixion death really 
a stone to the forehead. Three days later, a stone rolled away. Resurrection. The enemy's defeated. The giant has been slayed. Church at West Franklin, you may not have every giant defeated. But the main one, the giant, is killed. He's dead. It's over. He's defeated. And God's people can now go free. It's how God does it. He raises up someone that we don't expect. Seeing supremely in Jesus. Who does everything for us so that we can go free. Just in case we miss it, God gives John a vision at the very end of time in Revelation 19. Gives him a peek as to what's going on and how it all played down. Listen to this battle. Then I saw the beast, or the dragon, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. So you've got the dragon and Jesus, the rider on the horse, and you're thinking, here it comes. Here's the battle. This is going to be epic. Fight to the finish. Maybe it'll go 10 or 11 rounds. Listen to how intense this fight is. But the beast was taken prisoner, and along with the false prophet, both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. <laughs> prisoner, <laughs> over. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds ate their fill of the flesh. It's no contest for God. Your enemy's defeated. How can you live awake and alert to his presence for you? By knowing that your enemy has been defeated. Those consequences for sin or those, those, that punishment for sin, taken care of. That guilt, taken care of. Trust Christ. I'm glad the story of David and Goliath here. But it's here to point us to the greater. Jesus. May God be with you.